I hope that as we go through this week, we will consider the words of the song we have just sung and keep our eyes focused on Christ. Is it possible for Christians to be lured into thinking or having a higher view of themselves at the cost of looking down on others? Is it possible that perhaps even biblical knowledge, theological understanding, our view of God's salvation can actually contribute to making us view ourselves higher than we ought. For example, even those who may hold to a reformed understanding of salvation can look down on others who don't. Those who might have a particular view of, let's say, the end times can look down on others who have a different view. Is it possible that even our Bible knowledge and our Bible positions can make us view ourselves higher than those who have different views? Yes, it is possible for all of these to happen. And as we will see actually in God's word, the Apostle Paul is going to address Christians in Rome who actually were in danger of having a higher view of themselves than they ought. Would you open God's word to, chapter, to Romans chapter 11? We'll be reading from verse 25 to verse 36. Let's hear God's word from Romans chapter 11. We'll be reading from verse 25 to verse 36. As we consider the theme of turning from pride to praise. Here is God's word for us. Lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have, be have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has co-signed all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory 
forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you pray with me and ask God, join me in asking God to bless the preaching of this word in our hearts as we hear. Oh, gracious Father, with a psalmist we declare that from you and through you and to you are all things. We ask that the preaching of this word would be effective in our hearts for the glory of Christ. We pray that by your spirit you will work in our hearts as we hear and that you would help me proclaim this truth, your word, so that we would be edified and Christ would be glorified. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We are coming to the end of Romans 9 through 11. This uh, major section of the book of Romans that at times has been uh, bypassed uh, for the sake of uh, going to the more easier sections of Romans. And I must tell you, confess to you, I am happy I'm coming to the end of this section. Paul has been concerned about the Jewish people, about their salvation or lack thereof, and why so many of them have not uh, trusted in Christ, in God's promised uh, Son and King, King Jesus. If they, the Jewish people, who have had so many earthly advantages, if they rejected the Messiah, does this mean that God is not able to save His people? And in these chapters, uh, the Apostle Paul addressed quite a few wrong conclusions. And for those of you who are visiting with us, um, if you have not been with us last few weeks, just a, a quick review of the chapters we have studied so far. Paul has been addressing these wrong conclusions if so many of the Jewish people have not believed in Jesus and continue not to believe in Jesus, is it because God's word has failed to accomplish what he promised? And Paul said in chapter 9, no, it's not because of that. Is it because God is unfair and unjust? And Paul said, no, it's not because of that. Is it because the Israelites did not hear this word of the gospel? And Paul said, no, it's not because of that. Is it because they didn't understand God's plan? Paul said, no, it's not because of that. Is it because God abandoned his people? No, it's not because of that. Is it because they stumbled in order that they might fall beyond recovery? No, it's not because of that. Even the stumbling of the Jewish people, Paul said last week as we saw, even their stumbling was used by God for a good purpose. And in our text today, Paul wraps up all these arguments. He brings it to a conclusion, and he is calling us to consider how we should view the relationship between believing Gentiles and the Jewish people. Some Bible teachers consider this particular passage we've read today, Romans 11, 25 to 36, the most difficult text of all of Romans. It's a difficult text because of the various ways a number of the phrases in this passage can be interpreted. There are godly Bible teachers who interpret this passage very differently. 
and we'll share some of those views. Um, I may mention them, some of them, but reality is that I'm not going to go into the, all the details that explain the various ways this passage is interpreted. But here's what I'm persuaded this passage sought to accomplish in the first audience. And here's what I'm persuaded this passage seeks to accomplish for us today. It would be this. And this is the argument I think Paul is making through this passage. Let the mystery of God's mercy lead you to turn from pride to praising him. Let the mystery of God's mercy lead you to turn from pride to praising him. I wonder if you see the move that this text makes from, the, from bringing up the, the misguided wisdom in the very first few words of verse 25, being wise in your own sight. You see that in verse 25? That's how it starts. And then look at the way Paul shifts throughout the passage and where he lands at the end of this text. He is taking our attention to a different wisdom, to the wisdom of another. A wisdom that is deeper than we can fully grasp or scrutinize. The wisdom of God. In our text, God's wisdom is displayed by surprising us in how he is dispensing his mercy. Not according to what we expect. And when we see God's ways of dealing with his people, we will be led to praise him, not us. Our text has two sections. Uh, the first one reveals a mystery of God's mercies on verse 25 to 32. And the second section leads us to praise God for his mercy. And we see that in verses 33 to 36. As we look at this passage, let's consider what Paul wants to unfold and reveal for us. The first part he wants to unfold and reveal for us is the mystery of God's mercy. When Paul says that he does not want us to be unaware of a mystery, he's not talking about mystery in the sense of that which remains mysterious. He's not talking about something that remains hidden, something that we cannot uh, understand. The word mystery in the New Testament refers to that which used to be hidden, but now is revealed. That which was opaque, but now has come to be fully understood. Not surprisingly, this word mystery is used by the Apostle Paul in other parts of the Bible to describe the gospel. The mystery of the gospel. Being held opaque in the Old Testament, having crumbs, having clues to, a, to it, but being fully revealed in the New Testament. Uh, when Jesus has come to fulfill all the promises that God has given in the Old Testament. The word mystery is now used by Paul to describe a particular facet of the gospel. Namely, how God is working his gospel promises towards the Jewish people. Before we go into understanding this mystery, the content of this mystery... The first thing Paul wants to tell us about this mystery is the purpose. Why would he reveal this mystery 
to us now? What is the purpose? Why should we know this mystery? And Paul is very clear about that. Nobody should debate about the aim of, of this mystery. The aim of knowing this mystery is not to satisfy our curiosity about the end times, but to actually guard us from pride. Do you see that in verse 25? Lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. If you own another Bible translation, Bible interpreters would would render this verse 25 a little differently depending on the version you use. For example, the NASB keeps the original word order for this verse, and the NASB reads this way, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Do you see how the, the focus of revealing this mystery has this purpose? so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. The purpose of making this mystery known is to help us deal with our pride. And this, is, this, is, this goal is a bit ironic because this text has caused so much theological debate and has called, caused so many people to feel prideful in their understanding of this text in a way that they put down others. And this is the irony of it. I must confess that I've not realized this purpose until digging into this text this week. And I had to come to a place of personal repentance because I have often looked down on others who have a different view than I do about these matters. And somehow I have missed that the unfolding of this mystery is so that we may not be wise in our own estimation. Instead of being a text that stirs up strife or curious speculations about the end times or about Israel and the church, this text is meant by Paul to humble the church of Rome. Paul is not interested merely to set the record straight about how God will deal with the Jewish people. Paul wants to set our hearts straight. That we would not feel superior or entitled to God's grace. Paul brought up the danger of arrogance early in the first part of chapter 11. When he said in verse 18 and verse 20, Do not be arrogant, brothers. He'll bring up this theme of looking uh, in your own sight, looking wiser in your own eyes, eyes. He'll bring that up again in chapter 12. Just look ahead with me. 12, 16. Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. It's the same language as here in eleven twenty-five. But here in chapter 11, Paul is telling us how we should not be wise in our own sight. And the reason or the, the way he's telling us not to be wise in our own sight is to help us understand the mystery between Jews and Gentile believers. 
and how they come to faith in Christ. So before we look at the content of the mystery, it's important to be clear about the purpose and the effect this mystery should have on us. Not to stir up curiosity about the future, not to cause us to fight with one another in our theological views, uh, but actually to fight off being wise in our own understanding. And how does Paul help us not be wise in our own understanding? Here's the mystery. But what is the mystery? What is the content of the mystery of God's grace? Well, let's dig into it. Verse 25 to 32. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This language of a partial hardening that God has given to the Israelites, if you remember what Paul has been saying so far in the book of Romans, this partial hardening is actually an act of God's mercy. Why? Because we have seen from Romans 10 that God has been extending his hand continually to a disobedient people. The reality is that the Israelites all deserved God's full judgment. And the fact that God chose to spare only a remnant was itself an immense act of God's mercy. From chapter 9, we saw that God, was, uh, God has the full right to determine to whom he has mercy and to whom he, hard, or whom he hardens because God is a creator. He's the creator of all the universe. While all of us deserve to be vessels of wrath because of our disobedience towards our creator, God in his grace planned to elect some to be vessels of mercy. And these vessels of mercy were not only from among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles. So when Paul speaks about the fullness of the Gentiles coming in, he is not saying that all Gentiles without exception will be saved, but all Gentiles that God has chosen, has elected, all of them will be brought into salvation. While God is saving the full number of the Gentiles he has elected, a partial hardening remains on the Israelites. Now, some may say, well, wait, what about, what about all, the, all the Jews? Why is it that the fullness of the Gentiles are coming in, and for the Jews it's only a partial hardening? Well, Paul is anticipating this objection. So he wants to tell us in verse 26 that the Israelites are not going to get the short end of the stick. As if all the full number of the Gentiles are getting in and only partial amount, a partial amount of the, of the Jews will make it. So Paul says in verse 26, and in this way all Israel will be saved. What does that mean? What does it mean that all Israel will be saved? Some Bible interpreters take the word or the phrase all Israel to be referring to the spiritual Israel, meaning believing Jews and believing Gentiles. 
Now, it's true that Paul can refer to Israel with two different meanings, the physical ethnic nation of Israel and the spiritual Israel. And these two categories are not the same. Paul made that clear earlier in chapter 9, verse 6, when Paul said, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, not all who are ethnic Israelites belong to the true people of God, the true Israel. In other parts of the New Testament, Paul speaks about the church with the same categories as the Israelites were described in the Old Testament. And some Bible teachers say that Paul is doing the same thing here. When he says all Israel will be saved, that he's speaking about the spiritual Israel, believing Jews and believing Gentiles. But I'm not convinced that the reference to all Israel here is actually referring to believing Jews combined with the believing Gentiles. For one, because throughout this passage, Paul continues to compare the Jews and the Gentiles back and forth in this passage. So what is Paul speaking of here? I think he's speaking of the, of the believing Israelites. That all those whom God has elected from among the Jews, all of them will be saved. When we read the language of a hardening of the Israelites is going on until the full number of the Gentiles are included, Paul wants to know, to, 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 for you and I to know, don't be afraid that somehow the Israelites are getting the short end of the stick here. As if the fullness of the Gentiles will make it, and somehow the Israelites will not be saved in the fullness of what God had planned. All Israel will be saved. But who is all Israel? If it's not referring to the believing Jews and believing Gentiles, I think it's referring primarily in this text to the believing Israelites. All those whom God elected. That does not mean all who have descended from Israel. This is not necessarily a promise that every physical Israelite, every ethnic Jew will be saved. But those whom God has elected to save, all of them will be saved. We see that this focus on election as understanding this passage comes up in this text. When Paul speaks about the meaning of all Israel coming to be saved, and again, I don't understand this to mean every physical Jew, but all those who are elected, even from among the Israelites, all of them, all of them will be saved. Some people ask, when will this happen? When will this all Israel be saved? When it will come to fruition? Some Bible teachers understand this to take place at the second coming of Christ or right before it. And one way they think through it is by looking at the quotes that Paul gives here in the text. Paul quotes two passages, one from Isaiah 59 and the other from Isaiah 27. 
Our brother Zach has read to us Isaiah 59 already. But in that passage, Paul speaks about a Redeemer coming to Jacob to banish ungodliness from Jacob and take away the sin of God's people. And some Bible teachers say this will happen at the second coming of Christ. That's at that time, God will deal with Israel's sin at a large scale in that future time. The problem with this view is that the second coming of Christ will be too late to be dealing with our sin. Uh, just look at Hebrews 9, 26 through 28. When you get home, we're not going to re read it now. But when Christ will come again for the second time, it will be too late to deal with sin in a saving way. He will come to deal with sin in a judging way. The promise that a Redeemer will come from Zion to banish the sin of God's people has been fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. And even though the Jewish people, many of them, have rejected the Messiah, in God's mercy, God is able to make the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, be fruitful even among the Jewish people prior to the second coming of Christ. Even if we see only a remnant now among the Jewish people responding to the gospel, we can be confident that by the time the second coming of Christ will happen, the full number of Israelites will be saved. Through the proclamation of the gospel, even now we only see a remnant by the time the second coming of Christ will take place. All Israel, all the elect Israelites will be saved. Now, Paul explains this a little more in verse 28. He states in verse 28, As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Now, let me pause here for a moment and just look carefully at this verse. To reject the gospel... For any human being, not just the Jews, to reject the gospel makes us enemies of the gospel. Even the Jewish people fit in this category, despite all their human advantages. And this is a, a caution and a warning for any of us today. To reject the gospel, to reject putting our trust in Jesus as God's promised king, and promised Redeemer who came to die for our sins so that we would be forgiven of our sins and made right with God based on His sacrifice and based on His life from the dead. To reject this good news of the gospel makes people enemies of the gospel. And I wonder if even this morning there are some among us in this gathering that you have not yet actually put your trust fully in Christ, that you have not embraced Jesus by faith to be the one through whom your sins can be forgiven so that when Christ comes back, and he will, he will come back to judge the living and the dead. On what ground will you stand before him? Because if we 
are found on that day without having embraced Christ by faith, we remain in this category of being enemies. Enemies of the very one who gave his life for us. So consider your life. Consider this description that Paul actually uses about the Jews. This description is appropriate for any human being who fails to embrace Jesus by faith. Could this be said of you this morning? That you, as regards to the gospel, that you are an enemy? If you're not sure, we would love to talk to you after the service. Or I would encourage you to consider talking to, to a member in this congregation so that you would not remain in this category of being an enemy of the gospel. Paul goes on and says, as regards the gospel, these Jewish people that have not yet embraced Jesus are enemies. And Paul uses an interesting phrase, for your sake. He's been saying this earlier in chapter 11, that actually God uses the rejection of the Jewish people to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. But then Paul says another interesting phrase. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Well, friends, to reject the gospel makes human beings be enemies of the gospel. And yet, Paul says here that the center of God's salvation is not our response to the gospel. The foundation for our salvation is not even our response to this gospel, that the center of this gospel is actually God himself. That the foundation of this gospel news is God's electing grace. So Paul comes back here to the doctrine of election. Just because many of the Jewish people are hardened now, does not mean that God's electing purpose has been thwarted with them. Those whom God has elected are the object of God's love in an effectual, saving way, and they will put their faith in Christ. They will be saved. All those whom God elected from among the Jews, all of them will be saved. Not one will be missing this is God's electing grace. God's election was made visible by the fact that God chose the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember the way in which God called Abraham? Remember the way in which God brought Isaac to be born as a child of promise, even when Sarah was barren and old, a hundred years old? Do you remember the way God elected Jacob and loved him but rejected Esau and hated him, even though these two brothers were twins? In the same way, those whom God loved from among the physical descendants of the national Israel, they all will be saved. So how can we wrestle with this tension between the fact that so many of the Jews are now enemies of the gospel? Paul says, they may be enemies of the gospel now, but that does not 
thwart God's electing purpose. Those whom he has called, those whom he has elected, all will be saved. And Paul gives an assurance in verse 29. An assurance of the effectiveness of God's election. He says in verse 29, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The call that Paul refers to here is not the universal call that is given to all human beings to be saved. It's not even the universal call to all physical descendants of Israel. If we read the Old Testament, we will encounter many times when God's call to his people has been rejected, has been resisted, has been denied or uh, turned away from. And we know that when that general call has been given even to the to the Israelites, the physical Israelites, how it led to their destruction. It led to their exile. But the call that God, that Paul is speaking about here, this gift and the calling of God that is irrevocable, is referring to an effectual call. A call that cannot be taken away back without accomplishing what God intended. Bible theologians call, or title this or put a label for this call that is effective, that cannot turn back without the result that God intended for it as the effectual call. This call is the irrevocable call. It's a call that will not fall uh, short of reaching the fullness of what God intended. Now, we should also make a clarification here that when God says that the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable in the sense that God will save all Israel, all the elect Israel, the future salvation of all elect Israel does not mean that Israel returns to the land or that Israel will finally live out all the uh, physical promises given to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Romans 11 has nothing to say about the land here. It speaks about bringing back into the people of God the branches that have been cut off. They are being brought alongside the wild branches that also have been grafted into this olive tree. The picture here of, of bringing Israel or saving Israel is a picture of a unified people of God, both Jews and Gentiles who are recipients of God's mercy, even though both have been disobedient. Paul concludes the, the content of this mystery here by drawing us back to the contrast between how God saves Gentiles and Jews. He saves them in the same way. Look at the contrast between, in verse 30 and 31, between Jews and Gentiles. Paul says, For just as you at one time as just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. The point Paul makes with this contrast between Jews and Gentiles 
is to tell the Gentile Christians, if God showed you, Gentile Christians, mercy when you were disobedient, God can show the Jewish people mercy when they are disobedient. Because their salvation is not based on their obedience, but on God's mercy. And this has been the case in your salvation as well. So the Gentiles, Paul says, have no right to become proud against the Jews because both Gentiles and Jews alike were similar in their disobedience. And they are similar in being the object of God's mercy. Look at verse 32. Paul concludes his argument with a verse that can easily, and if it is taken out of context, it can mean something that the Bible does not intend to mean. For God has co-signed all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. If taken out of context, this verse might seem to indicate what is known as universalism, which is a view that says that in the end, all people will be saved. In the end, somehow, God will save every human being uh, without distinction, without, without exception. I'm sorry, not without distinction, without exception. But the word all in this text is not referring to every human being on planet Earth. Paul is not saying that God will have mercy on all human beings who ever existed. This verse must be read in the context of what's been going on so far in this passage the language of all in this text is referring to all who have been elect. God has been treating all the elect Jews and Gentiles the same way. Both categories have been at one time in disobedience. All the elect, even though they've been elected, have still been at one time in their existence disobedient. And Paul says that in the same way, God shows his mercy on them all. None of the elect had an extra human advantage that would help them in their salvation. Yes, the Jews had advantages. They had the law. They had God's promises. They had the covenants. But when it comes to the spectrum of obedience... Both Jews and Gentiles have been co-signed to disobedience, have been given to disobedience. And even their disobedience has been under God's control so that when God shows even the elect mercy, he shows them mercy despite the fact that they have been disobedient. Do you see how the logic goes? Paul actually wants to show that both Jews and Gentiles, the elect ones, when it comes to God's mercy, they all deserve, actually, God's wrath because all have been disobedient, like all humanity has and is. And yet God, in his mercy, in his electing grace, chose to show his mercy to some and all those whom he has elected he is bringing to salvation. Now, 
I realize that this interpretation of these verses that I've just presented to you uh, may not be embraced by everybody. And that's okay. As long as we are clear that the only means to be saved is through Jesus Christ. If we are clear that the only way for Jews and Gentiles to be made right with God is on the foundation of faith in Jesus Christ, our other understandings of this passage and differences in that interpretation are okay. I would still want to persuade you otherwise, but I want to do it in a gentle way, not in a demeaning way. But the bottom line is that for us, what we can be clear about is the purpose of this mystery. The purpose is to lead us to fight off pride, causing us somehow, that tendency to cause us to think that we have an advantage to God's salvation. That we somehow have a, a higher ground to God's grace. The Jews thought they had that because of the covenants in the Old Testament and all the promises that God gave to them in the Old Testament. When the Gentiles realized what God was doing with the Jews and the Gentile Christians realized, oh, God is leaving the Jews behind and just moving on with the Gentiles, now it's the Gentiles who had reasons to believe that they had an upper hand over the Jews. And Paul says, when you understand that both Jew and Gentile are equal in disobedience and are equal in need of God's mercy, you have no grounds to think that you have a higher standing over your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Here are some applications for us to consider as Paul makes this mystery, though debated, makes the intent of this mystery very clear. God's mercy reaches the unlikely, even those who seem to be too hardened. Even the Gentiles, uh, even the, uh, the Jewish believers who, uh, I'm sorry, the Jewish unbelievers who right now seem to be hardened, Paul is giving us hope to hold on that God is able to show mercy to those who are hardened. We should be encouraged and grow in confidence in this mercy of God, that it has power to soften and even melt hardened hearts. So some applications for us is don't give up hope about those who are currently enemies of the gospel. Keep praying for them. Keep sharing Christ with them. Keep waiting, pleading with the Lord for them. God's plan of election will not fail just because some are hardened now. I love how one Bible teacher put it. We must not get so used to their hardness of heart that we cease to weep for them, to pray for them, to take our opportunities to speak to them of Christ. We should pray fervently, preach passionately, and live graciously. Friends, do people that you are ministering to see you live in a gracious way? Even even evangelism. Sometimes we can look in our evangelistic zeal and look down on people. We should, we should evangelize with a humble heart, not with a heart that is domineering over those to whom we are seeking to speak. Or consider also our life together as a church. Does this mystery apply to us 
believers in the 21st century, consider how the beauty of God's grace and mercy should affect the way we relate to one another. Consider how even Paul, after speaking about the mercy of God, shown both to Jews and Gentiles alike, Paul will begin speaking uh, and, and going into a section of the book that will challenge believers to consider how they relate to one another. Just consider what's coming up in chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15. All of them have to do with how people relate to one another. Because when we understand the mercy of God, it will affect the level of graciousness with which we live towards one another. Well, friends, consider for us who are members of this congregation, it's easy to see imperfections in the life of this congregation. But let's live in a way with one another that we actually highlight and focus not on the imperfections and the shortcomings that we have with each other, but that we actually focus first and foremost on evidences of God's mercy and grace in each other's lives. So that the way we interact with each other as members of this congregation actually puts God's character and His mercy on display to show sacrificial love, to show forgiveness, to show patience, to show preferring to the interests of others over the interests of ourselves. The purpose Paul has with this mystery is to help us fight off pride by considering the mercy of God's mercy. By considering the mystery of God's mercy. But this is just half of the battle. Fighting off pride. Say, wait, it's 12 o'clock and this is just half of the battle? Don't worry. The last few words and the second point will be much shorter. But it is, Paul is not merely pointing us away from pride. He wants us to actually turn to praising God for this mercy. Explaining the dynamics of, of the mystery of God's mercy towards both Gentiles and Jews alike leads Paul to this final place of praise. Praise. When we have just heard how God works despite the present lack of results among the Jewish people, when we have just heard of how God brings about his salvation to both Gentiles and Jews alike, even though both have been disobedient, that he does it in the same way, extending his mercy to those who don't deserve it, extending his mercy to fulfill his electing purposes and to fulfill his promises, when we hear all that, the right reaction is, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of this God. How unscrutable are his ways. How unfathomable are his judgments. Paul is bringing here two passages from the Old Testament. Again, two quotes. To help us gain an understanding of the grandeur of God. And he brings up passages from Isaiah 40 and from Job 41. In both Old Testament texts, Paul is bringing up conversations that God has had either with his people, Israel, or with his servant, Job. In Isaiah 40, 
It's after God told the Israelites that he's going to take them into exile and destroy them. But nevertheless, even out of Babylon, God will bring them back. And the Jews and the Jewish people are like, no, that's just impossible. Humanly, it is impossible. And God says, who has given counsel to the Lord? Who can measure the greatness of God's power? All the nations are like a drop in a bucket to the Lord. You're telling me that I cannot rescue you out of Babylon? I'm going to make a foreign king, the king of the nation that is taking you out of exile. I'm going to make him my shepherd to build up Jerusalem for me. And he will do it with no reward. I can do this. Who has given counsel to the Lord? That's Isaiah 40. And then Job, when Job is at the end of his explanations and he's finally frustrated with God himself, God has a word for Job. He says, where were you when I did all this? Where were you when I made all the stars? Where were you when I created even the, the, the beasts of the earth? Where were you when I did all this creation? So God says to Job in um, verse 35, who has given a gift to the Lord that the Lord might be repaid? In other words, did God have to loan money from somebody? Did anybody have to come to God's help to lend him some supplies so that God could do what he wants to do? And of course, the answer is no one has. God is not accountable to anyone. God is self-sufficient. All of this Paul brings up to help us understand that when we are thinking of praising God, we are drawn to see his riches, his wisdom, his power, and to recognize we cannot understand fully how God plans this salvation out. We cannot understand fully how it is that God's electing grace, he elects people for himself, and yet others are left out. We don't understand fully how all that works, but what we must understand is that he does it graciously. He's out, he does it out of mercy because none of us would deserve to receive it. How do we fight being wise in our own eyes by considering the unfathomable wisdom of God. God is never in need of a management consultant to help him rule and rescue the world. God does not need our logic or our sense of understanding so that he would save people. God does it in amazing and unfathomable ways. And Paul concludes this call to praise him with a doxology, with a powerful summary of who God is. And the summary is in verse 36. For who, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God is a source of all things. God is a means by, all, by which all things work properly. That's why our evangelism can work. 
Because God is the one who, through, who uses means to accomplish his purposes. God is the goal for which all things were created. Well, friends, just think of this verse, verse 36. It's, it would be a great verse for you to memorize. We're from him and to, through him and to him are all things. And consider your life. Do you think of your life as having its source in God? Do you think of your life as having its source in God? Do you think of your life as having its sustenance through God? Do you think of your life as having its purpose in God? Because God is the source, the means, and the goal of all things. He deserves all our praise and glory. Well, friends, here we are at the conclusion of this third major section of the book of Romans. The close of this difficult, yet I pray, useful and nourishing section of the book of Romans. This text helped us to see the mystery of God's mercy and the praise for God's mercy. So what are you going to do with these? Here's my encouragement to you. Let the mystery of God's mercy lead you to turn from pride to praise. For the sake of God's glory among all the nations. Let's pray. Oh, gracious uh, Heavenly Father, we cannot fully understand all your ways. We cannot fully grasp all your judgments. But what you reveal to us in your word, we want to understand and grasp. And we want to do so humbly, recognizing, oh Lord, that we deserve nothing on our own. But you have been merciful and kind towards us. Father, we pray that there's anyone here in our gathering who is not yet reconciled with you. If there's anyone here who's still an enemy of the gospel, that you would be merciful towards them and draw them to you. Father, we pray that you would open eyes to see the beauty of Christ. And we pray that eyes would be open for the gospel, not only in our gathering, here, but Lord, among all the nations of the earth, so that Christ would be exalted and your mercy would be glorified because indeed, O oh Lord, to you all things have been made for. To you all glory is. You are the source, you are the means and the goal of all things. So we want to praise you forever and ever. Amen.